This evening we're going to begin looking at Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And that's what we hope to do when it's my turn and maybe when it's some other people's turn over the next few months on Sunday evenings. First and Second Thessalonians were probably written only a few months apart from one another. And these two letters are quite short, but they deal with a lot of different issues. But it's also true that together they do have a clear dominating theme. They are more focused on Christ's return than any of Paul's other letters. Over a quarter of 1 Thessalonians and nearly half of 2 Thessalonians deal in some way with Christ's return. And in fact, each chapter of 1 Thessalonians ends with a reminder of Christ's return. There are five chapters, and if I just show you how the chapters end. In chapter 1, Paul talks about waiting for God's Son from heaven. In chapter 2, he mentions being in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. In chapter 3, Paul looks to the time when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. In chapter 4, he says we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And finally, in chapter 5, Paul mentions again the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you get the picture. And there's more of the same in 2 Thessalonians. Whatever Paul talks about in these two letters, he relates it to Christ's return. These letters are written to end-time people. Men and women who live in expectation of Jesus' return. And just to be clear what we mean by the end time. In the New Testament, the end time or the end times refers to the whole period between Christ's resurrection and his return to earth. So Paul lived in the end times and so do we. So being end time people doesn't mean that we claim to know the date of Christ's return. It means we understand that the next great event in God's plan is the return of Christ. Being end time people means we live in anticipation of that return. That was the mindset the first believers were called to. And it should always be the mindset of the church. We are to live and think with Christ's return in mind. And again, just to emphasize what we are not talking about, living with his return in mind does not mean speculating about the exact time of his return. Jesus said we could not know the date of his return. And Paul repeats the point to the Thessalonians. In chapter 5 he says, You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So being end time people is not about trying to predict dates. It's about thinking and living as people who are ready for his return all the time. So let's turn to the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. In the church Bible it's page 1186. I'll read chapter 1. 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is God's word. As Paul begins his first letter to these end-time people, He starts by reminding them that they are people chosen by God. At the heart of this passage we've just read is the truth that God elected these believers. That doesn't mean he voted for them in an election. It means he chose them to inherit eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. He didn't choose them because of anything they had done. He chose them before they were born, before they had a chance to do anything. Now, I realize this New Testament truth can be a bit of a hot topic. When it gets mentioned, some people get angry about it. They think it's not fair. Or they think that it takes away the reality of human decisions. That's one reaction. A different reaction is that occasionally... People get so fixated on this doctrine that they stop calling people to come and trust in Jesus. They fall into the trap of thinking the people God has chosen will trust Jesus without anyone sharing the good news with them. But both of those reactions are wrong. The Bible teaches that God chooses and we are responsible for what we do. Our choices in life matter. Our choices with respect to God matter. The Bible doesn't try and answer all our questions about how both those things are true at the same time. The Bible simply tells us they are both true at the same time. The Bible assures us there is no injustice going on. No one is being treated unfairly. And then those who think that God's election means we don't need to share the gospel, those people have forgotten that the mission of the church is to share the gospel. Jesus' final command to his disciples was to go and make disciples. 
God has given the church the job of bringing the people he has chosen into his kingdom. And since we don't know who he has chosen, we call everybody to come. Now in case you've missed how our passage relates to this, look again at verse 4. Paul says, We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. That one line is not just a passing mention of God's election. It's like a hinge that turns our whole passage. You'll notice that verse 4 begins with the word for. And it's immediately followed by the word because. What that means is verse 4 explains the beginning of the passage and then the last six verses explain verse 4. Verse 4 is the hinge that turns the whole passage. And this passage shows us two important results of understanding that God has chosen his people. First of all, God gets the praise he deserves for the good fruit in our lives. And second, the Christian life is recognized as a supernatural life. First of all, When we understand that God has chosen his people, God gets the praise he deserves for the good fruit in our lives. You'll notice Paul begins the letter by mentioning two of his co-workers, Silas and Timothy. Now that doesn't mean that this letter was written by all three of them. It could be that one or both of these co-workers is going to deliver the letter to Thessalonica. And it certainly means all three of these men have a great interest in the church there. In fact, we know from Acts chapter 17 that both Silas and Timothy were with Paul when he visited Thessalonica and planted the church there. And verse 2 tells us Paul, Silas, and Timothy pray regularly for this church. And at least part of their praying involves giving thanks to God for these believers. But then look what Paul, Silas, and Timothy give thanks for. Verse 3. We continually remember before before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Thessalonian believers are full of faith, love, and hope. That's faith in Jesus, love for Jesus, and hope centered on Jesus. They were trusting in what he had done for them on the cross. They loved him for who he was. And they had firm hope that whatever their circumstances, he would give them the resources they needed. He would keep them. And one day they would be with him forever. Faith, love, and hope. And then Paul explains what this faith, love, and hope are producing in the Thessalonians' lives. They're producing work, labor, and endurance. These people served God, they helped one another, and they didn't give up. Their lives were impressive. And so we might think, yes, Paul is right to be praising these people. But, according to the text, 
he does not praise them. He sees all these praiseworthy things in their lives and he praises God. That's what verse 2 told us. He thanks God for what he sees in their lives. And the reason is given to us in verse 4. If we put verse 2 together with verse 4, it becomes clear. We always thank God for all of you, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. And the word translated brothers here includes ladies. So it's brothers and sisters loved by God. Paul is saying we thank God for all of you because the good things we see in your lives are the results of God's choice. His election of you. Your faith, love and hope and your work, labor and endurance are all thanks to God. If it wasn't for him, those things would not be there in your lives. Over in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, every good thing is a result of God's grace. And he deserves the praise for it. We said verse 4 is the hinge that turns this passage. And verses 5 to 10 show that when we understand that God has chosen his people... The Christian life is recognized as a supernatural life. Look again at verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Paul says the Christian life begins supernaturally. By itself, the gospel message is just words. Without God's eye-opening, heart-changing power, the message is foolishness to us. Paul says that when he brought the gospel to Thessalonica, God took Paul's words and he did powerful things through them. The message about Jesus had a life-changing effect on these people. And that's the only way it ever does have a life-changing effect. Going to a Christianity Explored course doesn't make anyone a Christian, although it's a great thing to do. Deciding to try and obey Jesus' teaching doesn't make anyone a Christian, although that's also a great thing to do. Even praying a prayer for forgiveness doesn't make anyone a Christian, although we must do that. Only God's supernatural, life-creating power can make people Christians. Without God's power, we are as powerless as someone lying dead on the floor. Then Paul says the Christian life is sustained by supernatural resources. At the end of verse 5, he says, You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Before we go on, we have to ask, what exactly does Paul mean? How did these people imitate him? Did they copy his accent? Did they start combing their hair the way he did? 
This is important because in many ways it's easy to imitate someone. There are many ways a person can make themselves look and sound like a Christian. They can carry a Bible. They can pick up the lingo. They can stop doing some of the things they used to do. They can clean up some areas of their lives. There are many ways people can imitate Christians without actually being Christians. But thankfully, in the second half of verse 6, Paul explains what he means by imitating him and the Lord. And it's a kind of imitation that only a genuine Christian can do. In the middle of verse 6, in spite of severe suffering, you welcome the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. John Calvin said, nothing is more at variance with our character than to rejoice in affliction. We do not have it in us to do that. Sometimes we can put up with affliction. We can grit our teeth and get through it and come out the other side. But within ourselves, we do not have the resources to be joyful in affliction. And Paul doesn't explain what the severe suffering was that the Thessalonians had gone through. But the joy he saw in them was, as he says, joy given by the Holy Spirit. Human joy is based on things going our way. A joy when things are not going our way, that can only come from the Holy Spirit. It's the kind of joy that can sing hymns to God even in the inner cell of a prison with feet fastened in the stocks. That's what God's resources enabled Paul and Silas to do in Philippi. That's what enabled Jesus to sing a hymn with his disciples before he went out to be crucified. That's what enabled Jesus to be strengthened even as he was being overwhelmed with sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this joy that Paul is talking about does not always show itself in laughing and clapping and jumping up and down. It's the kind of joy that enabled a man called Horatio Spafford to write the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. We may know that hymn. What we may not know about it is that he wrote that hymn after hearing that his four daughters had been drowned at sea. And he didn't find the ability to write that hymn by ignoring his painful situation. Horatio Spafford did not write an escapist hymn. No, in that hymn he writes about sorrows crashing over him like sea billows. And yet he can also speak about his experience of blessed rest in his soul. Only the Holy Spirit can give him that, give us that. Horatio Spafford was drawing on resources he did not naturally have within himself. Those resources supplied him with rest even in the midst of severe suffering. A moment ago I mentioned Jesus. 
And he is no exception to this. Jesus was fully man. But the comfort he experienced on the way to the cross was not human comfort. It was a divine resource. And it's a resource available to all those who belong to him. And maybe we could ask, does this mean that genuine Christians will never suffer depression? Does it mean genuine Christians will never be at the end of their tether? If a professing Christian struggles with anxiety or fear, or if they feel crushed by sorrow, is that evidence they're not a genuine Christian? Well, we've already mentioned what we're told by both Matthew and Mark in their Gospels. Jesus himself was overwhelmed with sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote about a time when he was under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. And yet in that same passage, Paul can say, praise be to the God who comforts us in all our troubles. When we experience comfort and peace and a quiet joy in the midst of severe suffering, we are experiencing supernatural resources given by God to sustain his people. We can't summon up those resources from within ourselves. They are gifts that God gives to his children. Then in verses 7 to 10, this supernatural Christian life becomes a powerful witness to God's greatness. In verse 7, Paul says, after mentioning their joy in severe suffering, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. The joy these believers show in their severe suffering inspires and encourages other believers. And it's also a powerful witness to non-believers. And notice that Paul says in verse 7, you became a model, singular. So it's not that each individual believer is a model, although that can be true. What Paul is saying here is that the church body as a whole became a model. It was the church body as a whole that caused the Lord's message to ring out. It was the faith of the body as a whole that became known everywhere. You see, people can explain away what they see in the life of one individual. They can put one transformed life down to a freak of nature. But a church of transformed lives, a church that shows joy and peace under trial, that's a lot harder for people to explain away. That rings out 
as a powerful witness to God's greatness. Calvin says the faith of this fellowship in Thessalonica shouted aloud, calling men and women to put their trust in the gospel. And part of the news that's spreading about these believers is the faith, love, and hope that Paul has mentioned earlier. Notice how the last verses of our passage give evidence of that faith, love, and hope. In the middle of verse 9, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Faith, love, and hope. A powerful witness. When you and I acknowledge the truth of God's choice, then God gets the glory and praise for our good works and for our endurance. And we begin to see that Christianity is not a bunch of people choosing God and doing stuff for God. It's about God choosing us and transforming us And giving us resources we don't have in ourselves. And then doing his work through us. And as we acknowledge that God has chosen us, we realize too that our hope for the future doesn't rest on what we've done. Or what we might be able to do. Our hope for the future rests on what God has done for us through Jesus. The truth of God's election is firm ground under our feet. Our own faith is like shifting sand. We all know that, if we're honest. But end time people take their stand on the grace of God. The grace of God that chose them and called them and that will keep them to the end. Our last hymn reminds us of our firm foundation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. <laughs>